0: Hello, everyone.
1: This is Mireille Gino, and you're listening to the New Books in African-American Studies podcast. Today we have, as our guest, Catherine Beicher, author of Crafting Lives, African-American Artisans in New Bern, North Carolina, 1770 to 1900, published by University of North Carolina Press. Ms. Beicher, welcome.
0: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: Great. Um, I wonder if you'd uh, just begin uh, by saying a few words about yourself, um, in particular how you uh, came to be a historian, or uh, how you came to your current uh, professional position, um, and also how you came to write Crafting Lives.
0: Well, naturally, it's a long story, but um, I, I've spent many years in historic preservation in North Carolina, working um, since 1971 until until uh, through the year 2000 at um, Archives and History in in Raleigh, North Carolina at the State Preservation Office. And in the process of doing National Register of Historic Places research and architectural survey work and so forth, I got very, very interested in writing about architecture and particularly researching and writing about the people who created the architecture. And years ago, um, some colleagues and I developed a research project that was funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities, to stu- to produce the book called Architects and Builders in North Carolina, A History of the Practice of Building. And one of the things that surprised me the most was the tremendous amount of information that kept turning up about African-American artisans in the building crafts, carpenters, masons, and so forth. So long ago, in 19... Gosh, what... Um, 1984, I published an article about that aspect called Black Builders in Antebellum, North Carolina, in the North Carolina Historic Review. And that subject continued to interest me. And so several years ago, uh when I was had finished a couple of ongoing projects and I was looking around for a new challenge, a new opportunity, something to do, um, I realized that I was still interested in that that subject, which is very important to me. And decided to see if I could figure out a narrower way to, uh, to, to to research that in a single community, and sort of to dig a deep hole in one place, as people say, to get acquainted with the population of people long since dead, of course. And Newbern, North Carolina, has a rich black history, has a great local library, and um, so I proposed that idea to Kay Williams, who was head of the Trine Palace, Historic Sites and Gardens at that time, at the encouragement of a mutual friend, because the Trine Palace had recently received a grant from the Wachovia Foundation to support research and um, public use of black history as part of their overall program, which they called One History, Many Stories. So I pitched the idea to Kay, and she saw the possibilities for it right away. They already have a African-American History Advisory Committee working with Trine Palace to develop their treatment of African-American history more fully. And so I worked with that committee and with the support of Trine Palace and the Wachovia Foundation Grant, um, mm-hmm. conducted research for the project. And it's just been, ex- it I found it a lot more than I ever anticipated, and it's been Ever so much more rewarding than I expected.
1: Hmm. Well, you mentioned uh, you mentioned Tryon Palace, and I wonder if we might sort of um, sort of get into the first chapter of the book, which is which sort of outlines the setting, um, and and maybe you can. Uh, tell us a bit about uh, New Bern. Um, there was a lot that I learned about New Bern um, in reading the book, including its history as the colonial capital um, and being the, the largest city in North Carolina at one time um, and among the largest, uh, most cosmopolitan cities in the South. So if, I wonder if, you, if you'd if just tell us a bit about that and, and also uh, for the listeners um, to tell them a bit about Tryon Palace. Um, well,
0: Newburn. It was, as you mentioned, a port and a colonial port, a colonial capital and for a long time from from the seventeen sixties or seventies until the through the early nineteenth century, it was the largest town in north Carolina that It was still small because North Carolina was largely rural, and none of its towns grew very large because of the difficulties of navigation and the absence of an excellent port but Newbern was Remarkably cosmopolitan for its size, it had all the dimensions of a quote city, and it also had uh, a good deal of wealth. It had trade with trade with distant ports, um, England, New York, whatever, and it also had a uh, remarkably uh, strong black community from from the from the very early days. There were a good many free people of color who settled in that area, particularly in the rural county, but also in the town. And there was a black majority, including mostly slaves, in New from its earliest years until the mid-20th century. One of the things, one of my goals was to sort of highlight the importance of North Carolina urban life. So often... As you are probably well aware, so often treatment of African American history and urban history in, in the South leap over North Carolina. Mm-hmm. It's like there's nothing between Virginia and Charleston. Mm-hmm. And of course we, Tar Heel folks, haven't adopted Tar Heel, um, from Kentucky originally, but we, we're, we're pretty proud of our state and its history. And I kind of like the idea of saying, Hey, look at, look at Newburn. It, it it's important too. Mm-hmm. And the more I learned, the more I realized that New Bern, um was an extraordinary place. And I try to I try to outline that in this book to show that it was not a little Charleston, it was not a little New Orleans, it was its its own self and it had its own own characteristics. And as you asked about Tryon Palace, one of the things that distinguished New Bern in the colonial period was the fact that Governor Tryon, um, who had come to North Carolina as uh, lieutenant governor and then became governor, decided to build a, a, a what's now called Tryon Palace, a governor's residence and meeting place, which uh, in New Bern is the most centrally located port along the North Carolina coast. And he employed a a an English-born architect John Hawks to plan the palace which was the grandest building in North Carolina by miles it was a it was completed in 1770 it was a grand brick building in a palladian classical style and it was the the single building that travelers through North Carolina would point out as being elegant and and excellent it did burn in the late 19th, 18th century though and um but its memory remains strong. In the mid twentieth century, it was rebuilt from the original plans and from archaeological information in a nineteen fifties, uh, but still rather authentic, uh, replication of what had been there. And it's it's been the big tourist attraction. It now has a history museum associated with it, and the interpretation of it has, under Kay Williams's guidance, and and subsequently, they've tried very, very hard to expand the interpretation to what they call, as I mentioned, one history, many stories, to suggest that Newbern and Trine Palace's history is one of a diverse population. Kay Williams, by the way, uh, died not long ago. She died in um, 2012, I believe. Let me double check. And... This book, my book, is dedicated to her. If it hadn't been for Kay, who saw it through, yes, yeah, she died in 2012, uh, shortly before um, her her birthday would have come on November 6th. But she she was a great friend of this project, and it had not had it not been for her and her faith in the project, this book would never have happened.
1: Yeah, um, and and you do have very uh, a nice uh, dedication at the at the beginning of the book uh, to yeah. her, so that's an important uh, acknowledgement. Um, so you mentioned with uh, with Tryon Palace as well as um, there were other sort of edifices um, that 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 burned um, in New Bern um, sort of throughout throughout the um, early national history um, as well as uh, you know, throughout the colonial period, early national history and so on. Um, and you also mentioned uh, again, in the first chapter that um, along along with that um, scarcely any craft items uh, made in New Bern um, survive anything that can be identified sort of unambiguously as, as such as being uh, made in New Bern um, and I and you you say a couple of, of interesting reasons for that uh, one the um, uh, the preference for imported goods and and just n- the, the lack of sort of a culture of identification and 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 um intentional collection of 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 craft objects, and so I wonder um what sorts of challenges that posed in terms of researching this book and how you how you got around uh, those challenges
0: Well, that's a really important point. I'm glad you brought it up. I think that I had two major surprises in this book in researching this book. In documentary sources, and particularly through the web, I did a lot of my research on the web, as many people are doing these days, but also through other, all kinds of different documents, I found more information about African Americans, both enslaved and free, than I ever, ever would have imagined possible. It was st- stunning how much information I could find, a little needle in a haystack, one at a time. But the other surprise was was the disappointment, since you mentioned I had hoped and even thought that, with some digging and some connections, we might be able to attribute specific uh, material objects artifacts to african American artisans. Um, but it turns out that of the buildings that were that we have documents showing that African Americans actually uh, built them, those by bad chance have disappeared the Craven county jail. Um, And a few others. There are others, there are a few buildings that we're reasonably sure African American artisans would have worked on, but we don't have the specific documentation. I had hoped that there would be pieces of furniture that, or other, uh, uh, perhaps a carriage or perhaps who knows what, Mm -hmm. that family tradition or research could link to specific uh, artisans, possibly slaveholders, possibly. Oh, slaves possibly free blacks, but in fact it turned out that as far as anybody knows, and there's been a lot of, a lot of investigation, there are no Newburn artifacts such as furniture, um, no Newburn artifacts at all except for silver, that are, are documented to any particular maker. There is a good deal of Newburn area furniture, and we know names of Newburn area cabinet makers and furniture makers, but we don 't know which ones made which things. there is a silversmith and more than one silversmith in New Bern whose work is known, but they were white and to my not to my knowledge, at least based on the research I could do, none of the silversmiths apparently owned or employed african american um, silversmiths or uh, or assistants or anything like that. There was a in Charleston, there was at least one African American silversmith whose work has been known, but not in North Carolina. So, what it meant was that I could not point to the particular style or way of working based on the artifact mm-hmm. that went with any particular African American artisan. I wished I could have, but maybe someday some material will turn up. Maybe some objects will turn up someday, but they haven't so far.
1: Interesting. Um, yeah, I, as I said, I was, um, in reading that you were, you know, able, um, as, as folks reading the book are able to see, uh, you do have a remarkable, um, amount of, of documentary evidence that you, that you use. And, uh, so I was, I was very curious, sort of in the, in the absence of, um, some, uh, of material remains, um, how you were able to do that. So that's really interesting to hear. Um, Again, um, just maybe backing up a bit, um, from, from that first, uh, first chapter, um, and sort of taking the, taking the larger lens of, of the, of the, the book and its, its subtitle. Um, I wonder if you might sort of talk about the interplay, uh, with, with a larger sort of American artisan identity and, um, and and how that plays in more specific terms uh, with African Americans in in New Bern, because I think that that's one of the larger uh, uh, concerns of, of the book.
0: Absolutely, that is one of the larger concerns. And interestingly, that was something that I came to understand fairly late in the in the process. Um, I I was I started out simply by trying to learn as much as I could about as many of the black artisans in New Bern as I could, simply. You know, gathering facts, gathering facts, putting them and putting them in some order eventually, and drawing links between them um, as 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 far as as much as I could, and found out a tremendous amount. But it was and it was actually when I submitted my manuscript to the University of North Carolina Press that the readers, you know, um, University Presses always get outside experts to read the manuscripts Mm -hmm. they receive. And then they make comments on how the book might be improved. And they did. And they, um, they really pushed to, um, to say this needs to address a bigger question. You need to address a bigger question here. This is a, a good narrative, but it needs to uh, touch on larger arguments. And so I looked and looked about that and thought and thought and finally uh, realized that there had been treatment in a wonderful book called American Artisans. Crafting Social Identity, 1750 to 1850, uh, addressed the question of what was American artisan identity in places besides just the northeastern states and cities where artisan identity studies had been the most prevalent. And one of the articles um, in it, essays in that, raised the the question of how could uh, African-American artisans in the South fit into... The picture of American artisan identity, because American artisan identity was grounded in a sense of independence, in a sense of um, reliance on trade, on relationships, and to, to sort of social identity. And what I realized was that although it was difficult, and there were many hard questions, that actually these artisans in Newbern, they were they were numerous enough, and they um, were strong enough, and they were. They were self-aware enough that they really did claim a place as artisans within the larger artisan identity, um, in, in which they were claiming to be. They were proud of their identity. They were proud of their artisanry and they, they grounded their social identity in that trade. Um, one of the things that I point out in the book is that it's easy to, to, um, to see as in many, as in many communities, it's easy to see how white racial concepts could stifle black development of their identities as citizens and artisans. But because of Newburn, in Newburn, I found that, especially in certain favorable periods, uh, we could, we could ask, what did these artisans do when they could? Mm-hmm. And what I found was that what they said when they had a public voice, and especially what they did when they could, really did, um, show the essential values of American artisan and citizen identity. And so in that way, I hope to open up that larger story and hope that people will look at African-American artisans in such terms in other places. It's, it's hard to know how true the Newbern model, how well that model applies to other communities, mm-hmm. but um, I'm hoping maybe that will open up a little bit. One of the good examples I... uh I liked especially was there was a carpenter named Thomas Newton who had been born in slavery and become freed. But when he um, sought to, he bought and sought to free his wife, who was also enslaved, and he identified himself as a master of his trade. And he wrote in his petition that he had gotten the money to buy and free his wife, quote, by the fruits of his honest industry, mm-hmm. which was just exactly the same language that white artisans in the Northeast and elsewhere were using to claim their place in, in society and the economy.
1: And that's actually, the fruits of honest industry is actually the title of your of your second chapter. So that's, exactly, yeah. exactly.
0: That's I like that phrase. Yeah, no, <laughs>
1: it's, 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 it is a fantastic phrase. Well, and just to, so that, that is really interesting, that, you know, this idea that the, the racial mores of the South make, um, participation in this identity a sort of problematic or complex proposition uh, for blacks in Newbern, but you mentioned um, that more generally a sort of American artisan identity was based on, on uh, largely on independence and trade and and relationships. And one of the things that I found really interesting in your in your book, it's sort of a recurring theme, is this idea of the sort of uh, familiarity and mutual knowledge of the blacks and whites in New Bern that sort of come from this, you know, close proximity, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and um, and I and I wonder if you might sort of talk about that. How how in fact uh, the those relationships and, and trade that were characteristic of um, uh, non black artisan mm-hmm. citizen identity sort of translates in, in, in this in this way.
0: Well, one thing that I think we all have to be aware of is that so much of our recent understanding of the late 18th and early 19th century about racial relationships and proximity is really off Mm -hmm. because so much of our history, so much of that has been seen through the lens of the post-1900 and thereafter Jim Crow segregation. I mean, certainly the South in which I grew up was a segregated, very segregated South. Lexington, Kentucky, and much of the history was uh, the South has been written since since that time, and is we just see that past world through a lens of of rather strict segregation. But in fact, particularly in the late 18th century and the early 19th century, the cities were. If you walked down the street in the city, you would see black and white people. Everywhere, and see them in many cases interacting, and in many cases living side by side, or at least fairly nearby, because cities at that time, small cities at least, were race mixed, mixed places in terms of race, in terms of class, and in terms of use. There would be a blacksmith shop or a or a, a business near, not far from a church, from a or from a a, a big house or a little house. So there was. Interaction almost all the time. In fact, northern visitors, where things were a bit more segregated sometimes, northern visitors in the early 1800s in Newburn were amazed at the amount of interaction and the fact that white artisans, for example, white carpenters, let's say, would take black uh, apprentices to train them in their, in their trades, which was not happening in the north. In fact, in some northern towns was, was, um, Against the law, or at least against the custom, so it 's just ever so much more interaction now that 's not to say that there was quote social equality mm-hmm. there certainly was not um, everybody there was a strong hierarchy of race and class, and everybody was totally aware of it so it, just because you saw somebody talking to each other in the street doesn 't mean that they were going to invite somebody into their house right um, except maybe to fix the roof. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a really strong hierarchy of race and class. But within it, there was a good, good deal of interaction. And in fact, I mean, for example, Donut Mumford, who was one of the, who was a brick uh, mason and plasterer who became free in, uh, when he was around 30. He was very well known in his trade. And at one point, he was appointed to a committee with other leading Craftsmen, building craftsmen in town, who were all white, to serve on the committee to evaluate the structural uh, integrity or strength of the tower at, at Christ, Christ Episcopal Church, and he also was a member of Christ Episcopal Church, which was both black and white people uh, in the church. So, in those ways, there was there was more. I think there was more understanding of individual. Person, personalities and and characters than there would be later. I mean, it's, to some extent, even in the 1850s, but particularly after 1900, um, there was a more monolithic sense of race than there was in those days. And so in the, in the early 1800s, for example, I think people... The White leadership had a stronger sense of the individual people in the black community, mm-hmm. of course that's true in a, in a that's true in any town at any time mm-hmm. that there are people who know each other personally and know people's reputation and that kind of is a is a variation on the seemingly monolithic racial relationships that there are personal relationships and personal knowledge that that works. Kind of counter to that,
1: um, and and along with that, and and, um, and here we sort of um, might come to the to uh, again the second chapter entitled "The Fruits of Honest Industry" that covers uh, the period seventeen seventy to, to eighteen thirty. Um, this um, again something that you that you come back to uh, a, a few times in in the book. These part of what what seems to be uh, sort of. Uh, Structuring and, 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 and in some ways, sort of facilitating these relationships is, uh, is this idea of, of these enactments or performances of deference that are tied to uh, to color and place. And, and mm-hmm. you mentioned that um, in the in the second um, in the second uh, chapter. And I, I wonder if you might sort of talk about that specifically to uh, to in relation to the artisans who are these skilled workers and yet um again sort of uh have very specific uh places in this in this hierarchy and how they uh might have walked that line
0: right well we can only imagine what it would have been like psychologically um for these individuals to to operate successfully in that world um there's a there's a quote in here a bit um uh, you've read, that describes John R. Green, who was a tailor, a very successful tailor. He, too, was earned, gained his freedom as a young adult. And a, contemporary, a rough contemporary of his at one time wrote, from memory, a white man wrote that he was a, a tailor employing several journeymen and apprentices who turned out a good style of work. He was a bright mulatto and always dressed in the latest fashion, making his own figure an advertisement of his proficiency in the art of improving the looks of men. He was much respected for his modest, unassuming behavior, though he possessed wealth enough to put on airs. And to me, that just kind of sums sums up the strategies that so many people had to use. And and this is not something that's disappeared Mm -hmm. in terms of having confidence in your own ability, having skills. Having a uh, probably a pretty outstanding place in your own social circles, but at the same time, presenting an unthreatening um, and, as you say, deferential uh, manner to the the white master class and the white well the whole white population, so that they would not not try to cut you down. Mm -hmm. And I think that that must have that must have been always uh, it must have been incredibly stressful. Mm-hmm. As as so many racial racial constructs are stressful on participants today, but for the people who succeeded, um, they somehow managed it to 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 some extent. You know how much we don't we don't have any firsthand statements about right. that from the people who made who had to accomplish these performances. These are all outside commentaries.
1: So I wonder if you might uh, tell us about the sorts of items that were being manufactured by uh, African American artisans uh, at this at this time, and um, as well as the the system uh, wherein their uh, their wages were being uh, were being diverted to uh, to owners. Um,
0: right. Mm-hmm. Um, in answer to the first part of your questions, um, African American artisans in Newburn, at least, really did practice all the essential trades. And they made all kinds of things that people needed in a time as you mentioned when people handicrafted elements locally made were very important, as well as especially in places like Newbou, imported things but there were um, there were black carpenters and masons who built buildings and plasters who guess what plastered inside and outside <laughs> um, they were not silversmiths, as far as we know, and not gunsmiths, as far as we know who were people of color. That there were dressmakers, tailoresses who made women who made men's clothing, tailors, shoemakers, bonnet makers. Um, especially important were the were two essential trades: blacksmiths who made horseshoes and and hinges and handles and nails and and um, barrel hoops and all kinds of things that people needed every day at their forges. And um, and then there were also coopers who we don't think much about today but coopers were really really important and a great number of them were african-americans and they made barrels and casks of all kinds out of wood and with iron rings around them and they um those things were absolutely essential to most of the economic engines of New Bern and much of the south much of the country I suppose because Newbern, for example was a major shipping point for for naval stores that the, the based products of the pine trees that were used for for uh, caulking ships and whatnot and those all had to be shipped that all had to be shipped by the bazillions in um, in barrels that were made at least for a long time by local coopers so coopers were terribly important and then in the late 19th century when they became barrel factories then the coopers Business kind of dried up, um, and blacksmiths too with the invention of the automobile and mass production. So mass production would cut into these things. But in answer to the second part of your question, what was called slave hiring was really important in the, um, in the antebellum period in which an artisan or a laborer or whoever would um, be owned by a certain, a certain person. And, um, Let's say James belonged to to uh, Mary Smith. And Mary Smith might have been a widow who had inherited James from, from her husband, let's say. And let's say James was a blacksmith. And so what Mrs. Smith might do would be to arrange with Mr. Brown that Mr. Brown would hire James, the blacksmith, for a certain amount per month or perhaps for a whole year. It would depend and then James would receive a little of that money that he earned, but most of it would go to his owner. And this was called slave hiring. And it, many, many, many of the enslaved artisans of the day did not belong to an artisan, another artisan. They belonged to a widow or a lawyer or a, or a planter who would then hire them out to, to profit from their skilled work. But in some cases, the, there was an operation, a system called self-hiring, which drove the authorities nuts because it allowed slaves more autonomy, but it suited both the slave holder and the slave hire pretty well and offered some opportunities for autonomy to the, to the hired artisan because what the artisan would do would be to find his own employer, make his own arrangements and then uh, take his pay for his work and then give over give back a cer give over a certain amount of it to his owner. So the owner didn't have to look after him or provide his food or housing or anything necessarily. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes people would live out too away from their owner. So that was that much more autonomy, which the authorities were constantly passing uh, rules against this, and because, as we can tell, when a rule gets passed a lot, it means people are doing it, sure. <laughs> whatever it is, um, and so there was constant rules about how you would get a badge and people weren't getting a badge, and rules and regulations about self-hiring and slave, and slave hiring, because clearly it had economic benefits, but to many people, fearful of slave rebellions or slave autonomy, it presented a lack of control i recently reading a biography of Denmark Vesey <laughs> that is really good about in a, a description of how the slave hiring system operated in Charleston, and Charleston, of course, was a place where um, slave insurrections were not unknown. And uh, but in any case, that book, along with my book, really explain how the slave hiring system works. Sometimes it's only recently I think that most scholars have realized. How important these semi-autonomous slaves were to the picture of, of urban life in the antebellum period, because they were not—they were not locked into the gates behind the gates of their owner's um, <laughs> establishment all day. They were out and about. They were doing work. They were working for other people. And in, in Wilmington, North Carolina, in fact. Um, there were not very many free people of color, but there were lots of enslaved people who worked essentially on their own. And the the white artisans would complain about it because they were often underpriced, they thought. And there's one scene in which the white artisans uh, in Wilmington, North Carolina, this didn't happen in Newbern to my knowledge, in Wilmington, tried to tear down a building that a black contract, an enslaved contractor was building, and then this enslaved artisan had actually employed other slaves to build the building, and there was a lot of tension over that.
1: That is really um, interesting but for, for a number of reasons, because you do mention sort of mid, mid-19th century, almost uh, 30% of, of free New Bernians were, were black, and similar proportion of black uh, New Bernians were were free, so it's a, sort of a... a um, really unique, unique setting, um, in terms of that. Uh, but to the, to the point that you just, uh, you just made about the, the, the sort of, uh, economic benefits, um, to the enslaved, uh, enslaved artisans, um, a lot, in a lot of instances, uh, they were working toward, um, uh, purchasing their own freedom, that of, uh, that of family members, toward property ownership, um, and, and I, I wonder if you can um, uh, sort of talk a bit about those those sorts of overriding um, goals, I guess.
0: Well, in the, in the late 18th century and the early 19th century, particularly kind of in the spirit of the American Revolution and the rights of man and so forth, um, it was not as difficult as it would be later for an enslaved individual to gain their freedom. Um, there were white and and later on, people of color who owned slaves who were who were willing to emancipate them um, if the if the enough money was available to put up the bond that was necessary under North Carolina state law to guarantee the good behavior of the freed person. So it was expensive. Mm-hmm. It was expensive to emancipate in North Carolina, but in New Bern especially, it happened increasingly in the. Early years of the 19th century, of the early 1800s in which both free and both white and subsequently free African American people would, would emancipate their slaves and then those, those people would in turn help others to gain their freedom. And this is how most of the leading artisans in, in Newburn became free and Newburn had a, a unusually large percentage and number of free people of color and a large number of of emancipations as a result and it was kind of a circular pattern the Mm -hmm. more emancipations the more free people of color the more free people of color the more emancipations would happen but in around 1830 um that changed Mm -hmm. and with uh Uh, Sectional tensions between North and South growing worse, the South getting more fearful of abolitionism, Mm -hmm. the Nat Turner Rebellion scared a lot of people, all sorts of things were going on, and so state laws were passed that made it a lot harder for anybody to become emancipated. So that but even so, the number of people in New Bern that were already free had already attained some status. Were already tanking apprentices. Were already buying slaves and owning property. They had already created a strong community. So New Bern was pretty extraordinary at that time for that.
1: Well, and and just to that to that point, right? You, just as you say, the the um, the ownership of slaves and and an established apprenticeship system. Um, sort of help to protect uh, independence or relative autonomy and stature as citizens. That's mm-hmm. something that you, that you um, uh, say explicitly in the second chapter. Um, and I wonder in the, in the wake uh, in the third chapter, uh, you talk about sort of the, the changes that come in the wake of, of these um, of, of 1830 and sort of the tightening mm-hmm. and established establishment of, of um, Negro codes and, and that kind of thing to uh, sort of, uh, restrict, uh, limit the franchise, and, and any right. number of things. Um, I wonder if you can speak specifically to the changes in the apprenticeship uh, apprenticeship uh, system, um, because that that seems also to be a really critical turning point again in this uh, in the in the
0: right. Lives well, what it appears from these apprenticeship bonds, and it can only read so much into the evidence, is that um, after the after about the late eighteen twenties, the number of African American master artisans who were taking who were, who were assigned apprentices by the course dropped off considerably, mm-hmm. and it might have been an economic problem. It may have been a racial thing. I had no idea. The other thing is that um, the number of, of, as John Hope Franklin points out in in um, the Free Negro in North Carolina, classic work, what one of his charts shows is that. Although the courts continued to assign free children of color to apprenticeships, they seldom. Much more, much less often did they, uh, after 1830, did they uh, assign them to learn skill trades. More and more, they assigned them to as um, farmers, which really meant a farm labor, or women, young girls as spinsters, which might teach them to spin, which was more just teaching them domestic skills, mm-hmm. such as a servant might have or such as a, a mother might later have in a household. One of the other things that changed in a big way was that up until 1835, as you may have seen, in North Carolina, free people of color could vote mm-hmm. according to the same qualifications as as whites. It was only males, and it was people that owned a certain amount of property. But in any case, in New Bern, there were such pe- uh, uh, enough free people of color who Qualified in terms of their property holdings that there were enough African Americans voting that it really made a difference in the elections and the, the the candidates for office would make appeals to them and create relationships with them and look for, up for their interests. so they really had some some actual political agency mm-hmm. in eighteen thirty five possibly partly as a result of their strength in new um, the, the the black free blacks were forbidden anymore from voting. The North Carolina Constitutional Convention of 1835 passed a constitutional amendment disfranchising people of all people of color. Of course, women of no color could vote. Well, and and
1: and and that that um, that was a really interesting point in in the book. Right, this idea that there was uh, before this period. the, the right to vote throughout North Carolina but in New Bern um, it was at an exceptionally high rate for just the reasons um, uh, you mentioned because in a lot of um, you suggest um, that in a lot of cases there were there might have been voter intimidation and other things preventing people from voting right. in other parts of North well North.
0: and also we, we don't re- I, I don't know that anybody's really taken a research look at black voting free black voting across the state right but um only in a few places where there enough free blacks to vote to make a difference, mm-hmm. and as you say, perhaps intimidation kept some away from the polls. We really, I don't really know that mm-hmm. that's been looked at. If it has, I've missed it. But it would be an interesting question. Yeah. Well, and but you know, you're going to vote. You're more likely to vote if you think it's going to make a difference.
1: Well, I, well that's exactly right. That's exactly right.
0: If there's only three of you in town, yeah, what good is that going to do? Right. Well, um,
1: before before we sort of. Uh, uh, talk about talk about the some of the implications of uh, that sort of limit and elimination of the franchise. Um, one of the things that I thought was uh, was really interesting as well was uh, a, a couple of things about the, the artisan population. Um, there was a. It seemed that I, I hope I'm not um, I hope I'm not getting this wrong, but it seemed that there were it was a higher proportion of artisans um, that were runaway um, slaves. Um, and, and I don't know if I'm, if I'm getting that right, but you do talk, uh, talk quite a bit about, about the, um, the artisans who, uh, made, uh, escapes from, uh, from New Bern and, and, Mm -hmm. and nearby, uh, places. And also, um, a number of people who, uh, taught themselves to read and write as part, again, of, um, Bettering themselves and improving their economic and other prospects. So I wonder if we can talk about those.
0: I don't really have figures Mm -hmm. um, on you know the proportion of of runaways that were artisans. There are some studies that of colonial runaways that I read that that indicated that um, that a higher proportion, a higher percentage of runaways were artisans than perhaps. Were artisans in the total population, but I don't really know that. Um, but certainly, it was true that if you had a, a marketable skill, and if you had already the expertise of working in a in the larger world a little bit, you probably um, and some confidence in your ability to find work, you, you could you might be able to escape more readily and find a new situation in which perhaps you could remain free. Certainly, there are lots of. Um, of runaway notices describing artisans who were runaways. These mostly, not surprisingly, were men, young men between the ages of, like, say, 16 or 18 and early 30s. I did not find female artisans as runaways from Newburn, but I, there were some from other places. Uh, Freddie Parker, mm-hmm. an African-American scholar, has written a book called um, Stealing a Little Freedom that's about this, this question, and is a very important source. But in any case, yes, um, one of the advantages you might have if you were an artisan running away, if you could read and write, you were ahead of the game, because you could perhaps write a pass, a forge a pass that would say that you were um, authorized to go from New Bern to Wilmington um, in the service of your master, let's say, or you could write a pass that stated that you were a free person, and because people had were often checked for their passes to make sure they were not runaway slaves, and So if you had a forged document, um, or you could make one for your friends. Mm-hmm. That was a big advantage. In the, it wasn't until the 1830s in North Carolina that state law forbade the teaching of reading and writing to slaves. Mm-hmm. Up till that time, it was not forbidden, although probably some masters didn't allow their, their slaves to do that. But there was no law against free people of color learning to read and write. Mm-hmm. There were no public schools for blacks, but in Newbern at least, and per, probably in a few other places, um, there was a school run, operated by a free person of color, uh, John John Stanley, John S. Stanley, and his wife Fanny, mm-hmm. that taught three children of color, and a tremendous number of those children were the children of artisans um, in in town. And some people came from other other communities to go to school there. So it was, they didn't go through high school or anything there, but they did learn to read and write. One particularly successful African American artisan, uh, I think, stayed in school till he was thirteen, mm-hmm. and then went to work. Uh, On an apprenticeship to learn his father's trade, so they they could read and write, and and that was that was a tremendous advantage in dealing with the larger world.
1: Well, you just uh, mentioned uh, that there there's no documentary evidence or not much of uh, sort of female um, artisans that were runaways, and that um, I think points to the broader question of of um, of of women. African American women artisans were uh, their their identities as as artisans were largely documented, particularly if they were uh, if they were married. And I wonder if you could sort of talk about that absence and presence in the
0: right. Well, interestingly, if if you were an artisan, a female artisan, your job assignment, if you will, had gender specific. characteristics that paralleled the job assigned occupational identity of white women mm-hmm. um, if you were a female laborer, you might just end up sleeping in the streets or working in the fields along with uh, um, along with males. But if you were a female artisan, you have never seen a female artisan blacksmith, for example, <laughs> but um, there were there were women artisans of color and all the same trades that women artisans who were white practiced and those were the ones you might suspect. They were primarily spinning and all kinds of sewing, particularly um, tailoring dressmaking, and in some cases, I think, bonnet making. And these were considered relatively genteel occupations in some cases. And seamstresses. Seamstresses could be anybody from somebody that could simply hem up a garment to somebody that could really make a beautiful, fine dress or uh, a range of skills. And there were a tremendous number of both black and white, married and unmarried, young and old uh, seamstresses in New Bern, as there were in lots of places. And typically... If a woman was married, um, black or white, typically the census did not indicate her trade, Mm -hmm. although occasionally it did. It would say she was keeping house, let's say. But if she was single or widowed, or in rare cases, divorced, if she was a a single head of household in some way, or a single member of a household, such as the grown daughter living in, in her parents' home, then her trade, her craft would be identified very often and so we have some cases where we we know that the 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 wife was a skilled seamstress let's say and her husband was a tailor and so she would have been helping in the helping in the household um and helping in the the family business but only if she, only if, after he died perhaps and she's living on her own, then you see her, her trade identified as a tailoress or a tailor or a seamstress. So there seems to have been some, some tendency on the part of the census taker not to identify women's trades if they were married and living with their husbands. I don't know why. You can imagine. Sure.
1: Sure. sure. Um, well, and then in the, the last, uh, the, in chapters uh, four and five, you sort of uh, talk about uh, about the roles of women and the uh, sort of wide variety of household structures.
0: That on. Let me mention one thing yeah, about please. the antebellum period before we move on chronologically. One of the most amazing things I found um, was that, well, a couple of things. Even after those laws were passed limiting African-Americans' um, political opportunities, shall we say, that there were occasionally apparently African Americans who actually voted in the elections and and white observers would complain in the newspaper that this had been going on so that was that was pretty interesting there was um actually a, an African American artisan who was a member of the uh, otherwise white St. John's Masonic Lodge so there were there were these exceptions to the rules that were fascinating but one of the, the main things I wanted to mention was that as times got worse in the 1850s, as sectional tensions grew worse and a new generation of white leaders came along who were defenders of slavery and more and more partisan and political, uh, a great number of North, uh, New Bern and North Carolina's most talented free people of color simply left. Right.
1: Uh,
0: the leading artisans and their families from New Bern moved particularly to New Haven, Connecticut. And to Cleveland and Oberlin, Ohio, some of their children had already gone to Oberlin to College. That was one of the few few colleges at the time that would admit uh, African American as well as white students. But whole families moved to to Oberlin and um, and had had long and distinguished careers of greater opportunity than they ever could have in in the in the South. Charles Chestnut, the famous American writer, His family, his parents, moved from Fayetteville to to Cleveland or Oberlin, I forget. Um, Cleveland, I believe, uh, shortly before the Civil War. He was actually born up there, but he regarded Fayetteville as kind of home anyway. And he, he he grew up up there, but then he came back to North Carolina intermittently and described the situation in which one of the Fayetteville a Fayetteville white leader after the war said, "Well, we lost all the best people of color." To, they all went north And and um, Chestnut said to them something like Well, you know, it's just getting too hot for us here We were, we lost the vote We were afraid we'd be re-enslaved We mm-hmm. needed to get out So there was a huge talent drain a Huge talent drain at that time
1: Well, and, and coinciding with that uh, Was just sort of a general um, Difficult economic recovery Following the, the Civil War In New Bern And um, and so for those uh, for those who uh did remain, there were sort of additional additional challenges mm-hmm. um to the point that you made about the uh the sort of fraternal organizations there was um the establishment of the first uh uh black masonic lodge uh in the state uh, and that met with significant um white resistance and as you mentioned some uh, uh editorials uh, one of the things i thought was it's really uh, great that there was sort of a, some person identified as an outrage editor um, mm-hmm. who was uh, yeah. sort of taking taking issue with uh, with these sorts of organizations, and I wonder if you if you would sort of uh, talk a little bit about that.
0: Right the the Masonic Lodge in Bern was founded immediately after the Civil War by uh, leading black artisans and the black minister James Walker Hood, and when that when that happened the newspa- white newspaper editor in Bern got all cranked up and objected to it thought it was terrible and thought that the white masonic lodge in the grand lodge in north carolina should object and the, they got kind of upset but it turned out that it was not as they surmised uh, uh coming out of the white new york masonic lodge but out of prince lodge which was a Already established national black um, Masonic system or Lodge, but it it showed that two or three things for one thing, um, by that time African American leaders in in New Bern were really well organized and well established and were determined to exercise their full rights as free pe- as free people and as American citizens. One of the reasons that that came along so early in in New Bern was a chance event in history was that In 1862, right at the just a year, less than a year after the Civil War started, um, Union troops captured New Bern and they occupied it throughout the rest of the war and it became a free zone, essentially. And so, hundreds and thousands of former slaves escaped from wherever they were across the state, particularly in eastern North Carolina, and came to New Bern, you know, walked through the swamps and rivers and got there for freedom, and they In freedom, with most of the white leadership having fled to get away from the Union occupation, they, they were able to create a sort of, as we say, a rehearsal for Reconstruction on their own that created their own political connections, their own political voice and identity. And they were seeking equal rights, like the vote, well before the Civil War was even over. They were, they were strong, assertive. The figure Abraham Galloway, who was a black, um, formerly enslaved Brick Mason from the Wilmington area. He turned up in New Bern, and he was an incredibly important radical leader and a union spy. David Soselsky's book, um, The Fire of Freedom, is a biography of his amazing career. But he was just one of several figures, primarily artists and leaders, who who created a, a, a political activity and political identity in life in, in New Bern that was really unique in the state and rare in the South.
1: Really interesting. Um,
0: hmm. These people were, they just had such a clear sense of themselves, these leading artisans as Americans and as people of consequence that they just kept working to create their own identity, their own political life. And sometimes they encountered tremendous obstacles put in place by white leaders and, and they just kept at it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah the w- without a doubt the, the tenacity is, uh, um in the face of, of a lot of adversity is really impressive um and to that point I I want to uh sort of point listeners to um to your appendix which I think is is really just an exemplary <laughs> specimen because of uh, the, the biographical summaries um uh, that it contains are really, really, oh,
0: thank you. Um, yeah.
1: really great. Uh, These
0: are actual people, folks. <laughs> yeah, exactly,
1: exactly. And so it's really important to uh, to, to to underscore that.
0: Um, One of the things that people aren't as, at least in the history i learned and many people aren't aware of, is that after the Civil War, people often think things went directly from Reconstruction to Jim Crow mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. disfranchisement. But actually, in New Bern and every, many places, from eighteen sixty five and from the states' enabling of the vote for all all males in eighteen sixty eight up until the eighteen nineties, that was a long time in which there was uh blacks could vote and in Newburn they did um in good numbers they were a majority of the population and they were strong voters they would they would fuss at people today who don't vote. I'll tell you they treasured that vote and they got out and voted and in great numbers and they were there were legislators from living who were black there were uh county officials city councilmen all sorts of offices were, were held by blacks um as well as whites and there were often some pretty pretty rough practices over politics mm-hmm. what's new and um but there was a strong black political presence as well as considerable success uh, on the part of African-Americans in New Bern in terms of doing businesses, their trades, their, their businesses, and also in terms of their, they cr- created their own churches. They created their own various and sundry civic organizations. Mm-hmm. Some flourished and grew wealthy. Some sent their children to college and they sent them to school. There was a black public school eventually. They worked really hard for that. So they were very much into what some people have described as uplift, of, of, of moving toward successful lives. And some authorities, some writers assert that it was that degree of success that really spurred the, the white supremacists to mm-hmm. conduct the camp the The nasty political campaigns of the 1890s in North Carolina that eventually resulted in disfranchisement and in 19 constitutional amendment that took away the the voting for almost all blacks. It didn't say that, but that was the effect of it. Mm -hmm. That you know that was what the civil rights movement had to work against in the mid 20th century. But there was this period of a remarkable degree of of what they'd been seeking, Mm -hmm. what they'd been wanting. They were Actually, living out.
1: well, and and thanks for uh, for uh, sort of underscoring that because that is an important um, that is an important period that it is often um, elided um, in in sort of the the discussions that we have about these uh, topics.
0: Um, well, I guess, let me mention one thing. Yeah, uh, a lot of histories of all sorts of things, partic- including black history, deal only with one period. Mm-hmm like Antebellum or Early National Period or Reconstruction or Civil War or whatever. And what I thought was important to do was to look at one place, and it's these people, but in what some people have called the longitudinal way, right. which covers a long time. And so you can see how once one event or one person affects the next thing that happens, and how that changes in the next chapter. But some of the same people are still active, and so it it connects the story through time in a way that often histories don't do. They just treat one period, and you don't see what checks out from the period before.
1: Right, and and uh, you you mentioned sort of in the introduction uh, to your book that that uh, similar uh, similar studies. Pr- uh, particularly of, of African American artisans, um, avoid doing that. And so, this idea of a longitudinal, locally based um, study that your um, that your book uh, uh, steps into the breach in that in that way.
0: One um, of the neat things I found, and this was with the wonderful help of John Green, who's a librarian at the public library in Liburn, who um, looks up. He, he searches for obituaries in the newspapers, but because he knew what I was researching, he um and then they post them on the web, which is fabulous, he would send me little tidbits that he ran across from the local newspapers that were really helpful. But in any case, one of the things that he posts is obituaries from the newspapers. And in some cases, there would be an obituary of, let's say in 1880, of an elderly black artisan. And it would tell his life. It would tell who he belonged to. In, in slavery and other things about him, and so you got that sense of uh, this longevity of memory and presence of people from the very early nineteenth century until the late nineteenth century, and that must have had a tremendous effect on how people understand their place in their community absolutely
1: well that's and that brings us to an interesting point because you just sort of alluded to uh, maybe the effect of public history on uh, your book and the way and and how your book was um, the research, how the research was, was informed. And I wonder if you might uh, sort of turn it around and sort of tell us what you think the, the public effects of of public history effects of the book, um, have been or are.
0: Right. Thank you. That's, that's one of the things that's turned out to be just really exciting for me. On the one hand, um, I'm, I'm, I'm happy if the book meets with approval and attention from scholars in universities and gets used in classes and that I hope they will. And it's gotten one or two really nice reviews in, in historical journals. But what's been just such a treat is that it's been, it's become a resource for, for New Bern. Um, Palace, as I mentioned, has emphasized this idea of one history, many stories. And this is, become what we hoped would be a resource for for generating that and in particular there have been several events that have used the material I found and also folks in my local uh, New Bernians and I have had conversations and made plans to incorporate this history into public events and public history events so what it's functioning as is that it's functioning to some extent as a black history of Newbern. And that's not been written before someday. I hope somebody will write it. Somebody, not me, <laughs> uh, but it does because of the importance of the artisans it, and because I try to set it in the context of Newbern, it does give information. And so, for example, um, as, as, as shown in a photograph, um, uh, about a year ago, when we had the, the launch of the book with, a, with talks and a reading and everything at Trine Palace History Center, a launch of Crafting Lives, we tied it to another event that had come out of the book, which was, in my research, I had realized the importance of the first North Carolina volunteers of the U.S. Colored Troops, which had been organized in New in 1862. So with that information, um, I and my friend in New George um, Bernard George, who is a, a history buff and a black reenactor of Civil War Civil War events, um, we we proposed a highway historical marker for for that um, event for the first colored volunteers, and so we tied the unveiling ceremony to the on the same day. To the book event, and so it turned out lots of people, and it was a wonderful event with speeches and singing and the unveiling of the marker, and uh, several people, including Bernard George, wore his wore their um, Union, their Black Union uh, uniforms, which which are terribly impressive, and it was just an inspiring event, and most recent. And then later on, I helped with the information, used our information we'd had to create some ghost walk characters, which is a New Halloween thing where people um, dress up and perform as historic New Bernians. And a couple of the um, people that, were, that figured in my book, a couple of women, uh, were reenacted. And that was nice. And now we're talking about an upcoming event, which is the celebration of George Washington's um, visit to Newborn in, I think, 1791. I don't remember dates as well as I should. And that's coming up in several months. And we're talking about how best to make that a, a bigger story. And one of the events would be perhaps a scene that's in my book where George Washington recognizes in Greece. Right. A free black, yeah. a free black um, Cooper named Asa Spellman. That's and, right. yeah. and, and so that was that was part of the book. So in a way, I'm just thrilled that the book that the people people in New Bern are enjoying the book um, and using it to to expand the sense of history to encompass a more representative history than otherwise could be.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's a really it's uh, really sort of a great thing to be able to see in almost instantaneous. Uh, Legacy of the of the book, and that must be very uh, gratifying. Um, I love it. I yeah, love it. <laughs> yeah. No, as well you should. Um, can you, so in Is there, is there um, anything else that you have sort of on the horizon in terms of
0: projects that you're working on? Well, I'm doing some small projects right now. I'm, but I'm also continuing to be involved in um, generating material, creating biographies for my other ongoing project, which is a website at. The North Carolina State University Library is where I work part time, which is called NC Architects and Builders, and it's a series of biographical diction- biographical accounts and building lists for artisans as well as architects who worked in North Carolina. It includes a good number of the Newbern figures that I studied, but also all sorts of building artisans and architects who worked across the state. And it's um, NCArchitects.lib ncsu.edu, and that's an ongoing project.
1: Oh, fantastic. Well, that sounds like a great project, Um, and I certainly uh, hope that everyone will uh, go to the address mentioned and check that out. Um, Catherine, I'd really like to just thank you for spending this time with us. Um, I really enjoyed the book, and I really enjoyed our our conversation. So thanks very much for coming on the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thanks. And folks, we have uh, had the pleasure of speaking with Catherine Beischer, author of Crafting Lives, African-American Artisans in New Bern, North Carolina, 1770 to 1900.